beginning of our adventure You and I, we're a story We turn the time around, it's our time Episode 2, Cats and Boxes Hello! Welcome to part two of Adventures in Time and Gender, brought to you live from a field somewhere. In our last episode, Suitcase and I travelled through time, space and Ikea to meet some historical figures who, if they were alive today, might consider themselves a part of our trans community. Or they might not. Well, exactly. Things became quite tricky when we thought about what words to use. I keep thinking about something you said last time, about the language, the words you use, being like a lifeline. Yeah. For instance, if someone thought they were the only person who felt the way they do. To be able to find other people who are similar, either in their own time or within all of history, could be life-changing. Maybe even life-saving. Well, anyway, I mention it because it's made me think. I suppose I've always found the language that you lot use... Excuse me, you lot as in the trans community? No, you lot as in human beings. Oh. I find your language frustrating in that it's so open to interpretation and misinterpretation. How can a word change its meaning? How can two people have a totally different understanding of the same word? See, I like all that. I think it gives breathing space, room to explore. Language has always changed, hasn't it? Anyway, we decided for this episode to look at the words and labels people use and when they came into use. And our first guest is Carl Heinrich Ulrichs, a lawyer and writer from the 19th century. Guten Tag. Hello. I was just listening to you both talk about language. Then you said lifeline. I had a strong image of the red and white ring on a rope that you might throw out to someone who was in trouble in the water. For me, that's what having the language to describe myself felt like. I knew how I felt. I understood my sexuality. But there were no words for me. And at that time, scientists were naming everything. For example, look, here is a shield bug, a hawthorn shield bug, specifically Acanthosoma hemahodale. Scientists were naming plants and animals around the world, dividing the living world into categories, families and species. And I thought, LGBTIQ plus people are part of nature, so... Wait, you didn't use LGBTIQ plus back then, did you? No, I just heard it here and I love it. I love the plus at the end. <laughs> what you just said about, about breathing space, room to explore. The plus to me gives that space. Anyway, so I thought by labelling people, we could argue that LGBTIQ plus people have always existed as part of nature. Wow, because that's one of the things we found when we were talking to people from history. Without the words, they could easily just disappear, become invisible. Exactly. We could just say we're in a field. But if I look around me, I can see oxide daisy, ragged robin, Cornecockle, <laughs> Viper's Buglus, Common Napweed, Bugle. All of that richness and that without the names become just just a field. And without words to describe LGBTIQ plus people, each generation has to start over again. A whole new set of people who think they are the first to have ever felt such a way. And where is the lifeline to throw them? This is what I was saying. Oh, great minds and all that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, if we have the language, then a person can no more legislate against men loving men 
than they can legislate against, I don't know, buttercups and frogs. It's saying, this is nature. This is the world we live in, made up of beautiful diversity. And what was your first label? Oh, I started on myself and gave myself the label earning from Uranian or divine or heavenly, a reference to Plato's symposium. Uranium like Uranus? We say Uranus nowadays, suitcase. Pretty. I chose earning because I have the body of a man and yet I am attracted to men. Therefore, I have a female soul. Couldn't you have been attracted to men and still have a male soul? Well, no, because attraction is all about opposites. <laughs> is it? Of course. Attraction is essentially between males and females. So I thought, okay, I am a man attracted to other men. Where is the female in that? There must be female. And then I realised the female must be somewhere other than the body, somewhere invisible. Of course, it was my soul that was female. Well, a lot of people don't think like that anymore. I mean, about there having to be male and female. You don't think so? No. I think lots of people have always thought like that. Not just straight people. I think a lot of people have an investment in that binary when it comes to attraction. Well, I'm not male or female, despite that investment. I don't exist within the binary. But whatever floats your boat. Um, Ulrichs, you mentioned how science in your time was very focused on naming things, on categorization as a way of understanding the world. But the thing is, when humans categorise, when you divide things into this or this, you also make hierarchies. I mean, it's the same process that led to colonisation, dividing people into us and them. Categories create stereotypes. What does someone need to be like to fit the category? What if they don't meet the criteria? Think back to the warrior we met at the start of our journey and what she said about us asking why we even need to prove that trans people have always existed. How did that knowledge disappear in the first place? I think that overly simplified categories, and I'm not meaning you specifically here, Ulrichs, but I mean the categorization that was going on more broadly in the name of science, did quite a lot of harm. I understand what you're saying, but I, I didn't impose my categories on anyone. Earning was my word. If it doesn't work for someone else, then we'd find them a new word. I wasn't interested in squeezing people into a few categories and definitely had no interest at all in erasing the subtleties and nuances of identity. It comes back to that lifeline again. How do we talk about things that have no name? When I gave myself the name Earning, it allowed me to speak up for the first time because well, suddenly it wasn't just about me. If I was an earning, then maybe others were too. I gave a speech. The earning too is a person. He too, therefore, has inalienable rights. His sexual orientation is a right established by nature. Legislators have no right to veto nature, no right to persecute nature in the course of its work. No right to torture living creatures who are subject to those drives nature gave them. I guess it's human nature to want to categorise things, but it can be used for both good and evil, depending on who's doing the categorising and why. That seems a fair summary. What other sorts of words did you give people? Well, it wasn't really like that. I'm not an expert and I never set myself up as such. I found having my word earning helped me make sense of my own experiences, and I wanted to help others if I could. So I didn't label people. Rather, I listened to them and helped them find words for themselves. Say someone was a masculine person, assigned female at birth, attracted to women. 
I might offer a name such as female sexual invert. For some that worked, for others not, and we'd find something new. Hmm, nice. How about someone assigned male at birth who identifies as a woman? A word I like came from Havelock Ellis, who drew on my work. He used Ionist. Like the Chevalier. Oh, she'd love that. It didn't last, though. We don't hear it at all now in the 21st century. And that's, that's fine by me. I'm quite happy for the language to keep changing and growing. It reminds me of when I was first online. I remember googling transgender and then I heard about non-binary and then someone said gender fluid and it felt great to get closer and closer to being able to say who I was. That's so wonderful. Yeah, you say that, but a lot of people seem to find these words really irritating. My dad says it's all got too complicated these days. Why can't people just be people, he says. And I'm like, yeah, easy for you to say when you're a cisgender heterosexual man. You're the default. And what does he say? Oh, he just looks really bored. Like, looks out the window or messes with his phone the moment I say cisgender. It's game over. Like, here we go again. My work was censored and and banned. It's so strange to me. What's the threat? Why are people so scared of this language? Maybe because if you can talk about it, you can be it. And the fear is that you will make people gay or trans just by saying the words. There was a law in the UK passed in 1988 by a Conservative government that stopped councils and schools from, and I'm quoting, promoting the teaching of the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. When was it scrapped? 2003. Oh, thank goodness people came to their senses. Well, quite, except that it does look like our current Conservative government is going to bring in laws that look exactly the same. Yeah, and now they think if you say the words gender identity in a school, all the kids will turn trans. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. <sighs> I thought what with LGBTIQ+, and you googling, whatever that means, words for yourself... I thought we'd reach some sort of utopia. We can leave you on a cheery note, though, Ulrichs. You've been called the pioneer of the modern gay rights movement in the West because, in effect, by publishing your works under your own name, you were the first person to come out publicly. Hold on. Pioneer of the modern gay rights movement? Yes. There was a resurgence of interest in your writing in the 1980s and you became a bit of a cult figure in Europe particularly in Germany. Oh, well, that's that's lovely to hear. I wanted to ask you, I noticed there's no you in LGBTIQ+. Do, do people not use the word earning anymore? I don't think so, Ulrichs. I hadn't even heard of it before meeting you. It's mostly gay or maybe homosexual, but not so much now. Uh, maybe queer, too. Oh, well, <laughs> you win some, you lose some. It's been such a pleasure to meet you both. And you, Ulrichs. Bye, Ulrichs. Suitcase. Why did you tell Ulrichs about how he would come out? When the Chevalier wanted to know about her future, you wouldn't tell her. Oh, I could tell Ulrichs because he was here. We didn't go to his time. What difference does that make? Well, Ulrichs died in 1895. He can't change anything now. So, was that a ghost we were just talking to? Sort of. And what happens when we go to their time? Then we are the ghosts. Well, the Chevalier would probably consider us a vivid and amusing dream brought on by a pickled gherkin too close to bedtime. (laughs) The thing is, it's the payoff for time travel. Everyone knows that. It comes with the great responsibility of not being able to change things even when you know what's going to happen. 
Which is why, narrator, you are such a great time-travelling companion, because you generally have no clue what's going to happen. I'm going to choose to take that as a compliment, suitcase. Well, as I said before, it's not you so much as a shocking indictment on the lack of queer history taught in schools these days. <gasps> right, now it's time to go back in time and visit the great man Magnus Hirschfeld himself in his Institute in Berlin in 1930, right bang smack in the middle of my wormhole. <laughs> Stop giggling, narrator. What? You laughed at Uranus and Corncockle. I saw you. Oh, well, they were funny. <laughs> The woman who needs to be liberated most is the woman in every man. And the man who needs to be liberated most is the man in every woman. Oh, yes, I'm a genius. Don't you just love him already? Who's that? Ah, hello, old friend. What a joy. Hey, Magnus. <laughs> I stay up late every night hoping I'll see you again. And this time as a young companion. Hello? My name is Magnus Hirschfeld. Um, hello. So, where are you up to in your quest? Wait, how did you know about the... <laughs> There's always a quest. Isn't there, suitcase? Always. Uh, well, we've just spoken to Oryx. Oh, great. I love Oryx. I reference him throughout my 1914 best-selling books, The Homosexuality of Men and Women. I absolutely agree with them that we need people to understand that sexual and gender diversity are part of nature. This is the way we will get laws changed. In Ulrich's time, however, sexual attraction was only understood in terms of male and female, so he understandably saw himself and other earnings as having a female element because they were attracted to men. Yeah, I actually really liked his ideas up to that point. But then I was like, what, really? You have to have male and female. Yeah, I know, right? We need to stop conflating gender and sexual identity. But I like the naming of categories, though. In 1910, I invented the term transvestite. And in 1919, I opened my Institute of Sexology. Welcome! By day, it's bustling in here. But at this time of night, we've got the place to ourselves. Over here, you can see the world's only museum of sexual science. Here, you can see sex toys and thousands of photographs and personal accounts. A wall of sexual intermediates, a spectrum of gender diversity. Uh, do people mind having their photos up here? Look, ancient artifacts! I mean, yeah, there's a strip over the eyes, but they're still naked. A display of miniature boots. Have you ever seen such tiny footwear? Come along, quickly now, please. And this is the clinical space where my colleagues and I meet, examine and interview patients, building up a rich collection of personal narratives, photographs and observations. I suppose it's just strange to think of myself agreeing to be on display at the gender identity clinic, so I was just wondering if you Look could... at these novelty condoms! A tiny hand on the end of one. Oh, and here we have sex counselling and education. 
come and learn about birth control, marriage guidance and sex education. Now, this is something I want to show you. In this box, people are invited to post anonymous questions. And then at the fortnightly questions evening, I select a few and give my answers. <laughs> now, let's see what's in here. Hmm. Aha! Premature ejaculation. And this one says, the secret to a happy marriage. Hmm. Those are pretty standard. I'm happy to help them. My aim, though, is to change the world, and I will start by changing the law. I want to prove that homosexuality is natural. Oh, just like Ulrichs? Mm, no, unlike Ulrichs, I am not content just to make up some new words. Although, obviously, some of mine will stand the test of time. No, I have developed a diagnostic test. If I can diagnose homosexuality, then people will see it's not just natural, but also more common than they thought. But how? What's the test? It's a long questionnaire I've devised. So first I'd ask you about your childhood, and then we talk about your erotic desires. Okay, then what? Can you whistle? Like this? No, a proper whistle with your fingers. Oh. <clears throat> <sighs> No. Hmm. Interesting. You do sound like a homosexual. Now, let me feel your handshake to check how firm it is. Okay, I'm sorry. Whistling. Handshakes. These are just stereotypes. Yeah, it's not perfect. But essentially, if you come to take the test to see if you are homosexual, then you are most likely homosexual. For some people, a diagnosis is very affirming. We can laugh at the handshake thing, but say you have a young man who's always been teased and called names, told to toughen up, and then he is diagnosed, everything for him will click into place. This is the way he is. He can't help it or change it. And likewise with trans people, we issued transvestin pass, which enabled the person to wear the clothes they wanted to without getting in trouble with the police. I supported Lily Elba, you know, the Danish girl from the film. Suitcase? Mm -hmm. How does Magnus Hirschfeld of 1930 know about the Danish girl? Uh, uh, well, I can explain that. Suitcase just wanted my opinion of Eddie Redmayne's performance. <laughs> Hold on, Suitcase. What was it you said? Oh, yeah, the great responsibility of time travel. Yeah, That's what you said. No, you're right, you're right. Mm, I shouldn't I have done it. You should. But anyway, have. what's done is done. Can't change it now. Except you could change it. What, and cast a trans woman in a trans role? Oh, oh no, I see what you mean. No, no, absolutely not. That road is paved with pickles. Huh? You, I mean, you try and fix something, but then you have to go back and fix it again. And then, you know, someone in 1930 finds a DVD case and then you have to go back and get that. No way. Paved with pickles, as I said. OK, we'll move on then. Hushfeld, can I ask you, what do people think of the Institute and your work? Well, people are fascinated with our work here, as you can imagine. But we get the odd criticism. Let me read you this letter from a rival scientist. It's a lot of nonsense. Listen to this. I say, the Institute is not really scientific. It serves to, one, generate income. Two, to exploit people. Three, 
to seduce young people on the cusp of sexual development who would otherwise develop normally. What the fuck is normally, you know? And for to matchmake. What a load of red main. Well, that's completely ridiculous, but that bit about seducing young people who would otherwise develop normally is interesting. We were talking with Ulrichs about Section 28, and it's similar. The idea that as long as you don't tell young people about anything queer, then we'll all, quote-unquote, develop normally. In other words, be cis and straight. Yeah, there is no logic to it at all. If we are making people gay or trans by telling them that gay and trans people exist, how did previous generations turn out to be gay or trans? It makes me absolutely livid. In my career, I have seen far too many lives lost to shame and guilt. Someone, a patient, mentioned me at the end of the last note that he would ever write. He said, the thought that you could contribute to a future when the German fatherland will think of us in more just terms sweetens the hour of my death. Wow, that's really powerful. Yeah, it's why I do what I do. It's the reason for all of this. Mm. Can I ask, why was the Institute accused of matchmaking? Because people are idiots? Well, I suppose our parties have become quite famous. We have had some wonderful parties here. Masked balls, costume parties, soirees, dances. All of us, clinicians, patients, visitors, staff. Hold on, what? Patients and doctors partying together? Yeah, absolutely, it's a riot. I can't imagine anything worse than being at a party at the gender identity clinic. Just sounds really weird to me. Yeah, well, perhaps you wouldn't have been invited anyway. Because not all patients are. You know, some of our patients, for instance, have been employed at the Institute as housekeepers and cleaners and domestic workers. I don't want to be the cleaner either. I just like a really simple, straightforward boundary when it comes to doctors. Yeah, but what if your doctor is also your friend? I'm not friends with my doctors. <laughs> but everyone knows me from out and about in the clubs. It is an open secret that I'm gay myself. Of course there's going to be a crossover between my work and my social life. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe there shouldn't be. What? Zyza so should just stay in? I could not do this, possibly. All my subjects would be so sad, waiting for me to come out into the club. Look, come on, let us three go out dancing. Wait, wait, sorry, what? You have come to visit Berlin in 1930. It would be absolutely remiss of me if I didn't take you out to see the sights. Welcome, Dr. Hirschfeld. Wow, look at this place. Over there, it's the wonderful Miss Eldrado, famous for ending her drag act by throwing her breast at the orchestra. Dr. Hirschfeld, Liebling. Hmm. Hello. And over there, you can buy a ticket to dance with what we call a taxi dancer. It's a man in feminine clothing. You're buying a ticket, Dr. Hirschfeld? <laughs> Not tonight, thank you very much. Now you see those girls in monocles and dinner jackets. Aren't they wonderful? Oh, yeah, this place is amazing. I want to try on a monocle. You're such a little twink. I can see quite a few heads turning this way. 
It appears you have a bit of a fan club narrator. <laughs> See, I met a charming young man here back in 1907 and we danced and we talked and we watched the shows. He was very interested in my work with transvestites. He went back to America and is doing such good work there. You should talk to him. His name is Harry Benjamin. I'll write it down for you. Oh, we will we'll go to him next. Thanks again, Magnus. We're, we're leaving already? We don't have to leave now, though, do we, Suitcase? We could stay for the cabaret, at least. I'm afraid not. It's been said now. Our path's been set. It's a wormhole technicality. Fine. Whatever. Thanks for the tour, Dr. Hirschfeld. Sorry we couldn't stay longer. That's okay. You can always come back and visit me. Yeah, paved with pickles. Take care, Magnus. Seriously, take care. I will do. What happens next there? I mean, I know the war's coming. In 1932, they'll ban same-sex couples from dancing together and the El Dorado and clubs like it will be shut down. A year later, soldiers will take the books out of the Institute and burn them in the street. Hirschfeld had left to travel and collect artefacts. He got out just in time. Just in time. Were you something to do with that suitcase? Oh, he saw the signs. He had the means to get away, so took his opportunity. You know, that Danish girl thing, that's the small stuff. Eddie Redmayne's insignificant. It doesn't matter in the scheme of things. The responsibility of time travel is being in the El Dorado Club, seeing all those people, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to save them. Can we not go back? We could warn everyone. We can't. But what can we do? We can't just do nothing. We can only change things in our present. That's our responsibility. So as we head closer to your present, all we can do is take these lessons from history. What do they say? Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Exactly. I was interested in your reaction to the Institute. I thought you'd have been really excited by it. I was, in that it was really exciting to see how progressive it was for a hundred years ago, but some bits of it made me really uncomfortable. The parties especially. It's so open to abuse of power. A patient wants something from their doctor, right? Say, a diagnosis or access to medical interventions. There isn't equal power in that relationship, so I just think it needs really clear boundaries. So, say you were at a party and you met a physiotherapist who you'd seen about a sore shoulder. Could you talk to them? Yeah, why not? So what's the difference between a gender doctor and a shoulder doctor? The criticisms of Hirschfeld are similar to criticisms that some doctors who work with trans people in modern times have faced. That they're too friendly, too kind, not objective enough. It's almost as if society would prefer trans people seeking diagnosis to have particularly harsh treatment. Okay, but that's not what I'm saying. I don't want harsh treatment, but I also don't want to dance with my doctor and I don't expect to be able to pick up testosterone at Tesco's. I just want to be treated properly, you know? I bet there were people who went along to those parties just to get treated. Maybe there were. What would be so terrible about being able to buy hormones at Tesco's? Well, you have to have some sort of control or everybody would be taking it. Would they? Do you really think so? Why would they? Um, I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't. It reminds me of the homosexuality test. If you are seeking a diagnosis for being trans, doesn't that suggest that you are trans? Look, let's come back to this conversation after we've met Harry Benjamin. Okay. 1950s America, here we come! Mm, don't be disappointed. Benjamin's coming to us. Oh. Where? Well, remember you made that joke about a pub in Croydon? Oh, no. Why? 
Well, he's got his friend Kinsey with him and they really like a two-for-one meal deal. Are you going to have pudding? Is it in the deal? Uh, well, not if you want profiteroles, which I do, but then I didn't have the starter, so, you know. Um, so if you have a starter, what pudding can you have? Uh, oh, how many times? I mean, it depends if your main course was on the lunchtime deal or uh, not. Okay. Oh, Oh, hello. Hello. I'm I'm Harry. Harry Benjamin and and this is Alfred Kinsey. Hi. Oh, hi. He- hello there. You you might know me from the Kinsey scale. Please take a seat. Oh, yes, please. Please come and sit down. It's so lovely to see you. I I'm guessing Magnus sent you. I was really inspired by his work, particularly his compassion for his patients. When I was working in America, anything seen as homosexuality was illegal. Say you spoke to most doctors about cross-dressing, for example. That could be enough to find you committed to an asylum. Yeah. You know, I tried to change attitudes with my scale. I, I said at the time the world is not to be divided into sheep and goats. Mm -hmm. And in other words, people are not just homosexual or heterosexual, but it's a scale or a spectrum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that was great for challenging the law. Right. We could say... Okay, you say this is illegal. What about these people? Where are you going to draw the line? Yeah. My own work drew on Ulrichs and Hirschfeld. I was arguing that people don't choose to be cross-dressers or gay, for example. So how can you legislate against it? And then one day, Kinsey here introduced me to someone. A young person who would have a profound effect on me and my work. Mm, that's right. I'd, I'd been contacted by a mother seeking help with her child. And the child was born a boy, but said she was a girl. And Harry and I had seen nothing like this before, had we, Harry? No. Oh, well, the mother, she said, my child is a girl and I want to support her. That's fantastic. Yeah. When was this? Oh, it was 1948. Wow. We met a wonderful mum from ancient Greece recently. Sounds really similar. Lots of my colleagues were against treating the child. I mean, this was a difficult case for all of us. I'd only ever worked with adults who I diagnosed with transvestism. But I could see right away that we needed a new word. So I coined the term transsexual and made a scale of my own that went from transvestite through to true transsexual. Uh, hold on, hold on. Sorry, but how did you decide who was a true transsexual? Ah, very good question. Yeah, thanks for asking. So really it was just through talking to my patients. Patterns started to emerge. So if, say, someone said they'd always felt like a girl for as long as they could remember, that would put them further along the scale. Okay, but... Didn't you ever think that people just said whatever they thought you needed to hear to diagnose them? No doubt some people did. Okay, so why was it so important to categorise people anyway? Oh, it was vital we could diagnose correctly because we'd begun medical interventions on specific patients. We had to be as sure as we could that we were operating on the right people, those at the transsexual end of the scale. Notably, one of my most famous patients, Christine Jorgensen. Uh, shall I go up and ask about the pudding situation, Harry? <sighs> Listen, Kinsey, I, I, just to be clear, I am not sharing my profiteroles again, oh. okay? Just saying. Well I, specific, well, I specifically did not have a starter so I could get a pudding in the deal. I mean, I've told you before, honestly. It's very confusing, you know. Maybe you should make a pudding scale. At one end profiteroles, at the other end jelly. All the other choices in between. Maybe that would help you, Kinsey. I'm just saying, you're good at scales, you know? We'll leave you to it. <laughs> Thanks very much, both of you. Yes, thank you. Hope you get your puddings. All right, so I like the Kinsey scale. 
I mean, I like that it made people think about spectrums rather than a binary, but I can't get on with the true transsexual scale, you know? We still have that sort of stuff today. Nowadays, loads of people draw really strict lines between trans people, drag and cross-dressers. We have these super strict boundaries, but reverse time a bit and these communities were a lot tighter together. I'm thinking about Pose on TV or back further in the 60s, the Stonewall riots. Drag queens and trans women were interchangeable terms for a lot of these people. I'm thinking of Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. And maybe the push in favour of medicalising had a lot to do with classism, wanting to draw a line and say, no, I'm not like those people. I suppose there's also a fight for legitimacy. And also, I've been thinking about Christine Jorgensen. She'd be at the end of that scale, a true transsexual. It's no surprise that she was a blonde white woman, you know? It's just not neutral. No more scales. I wonder if we have our own personal scale, though, whether we like it or not. Like, speaking only for myself, but on TV documentaries, sometimes I end up watching them and sort of subconsciously rate who passes and who doesn't, and it sucks. I mean, take how most people also think of transition as this sort of linear model. They think when you've had all the surgeries, when you get to the end, then you're finally finished, you're done. I mean, that's like a scale. So people talk about pre-op and post-op, and that's why we have this whole detransition narrative. Now I'm going back this way. Whereas actually, it might be someone going forwards towards finding themselves. So maybe it isn't that I don't want scales, I just don't want other people's scales imposed on me. I totally get what you're saying, especially about the internalized transphobia, but I just don't know how someone like Benjamin could have worked without a scale, you know, without criteria. The whole thing was so precarious. As he said, a cross-dresser could find themselves committed to an asylum. Being gay was illegal. He had to get it right, and he was taking a personal risk. I'd imagine a court case could have brought the whole thing tumbling down and stopped treatment for everyone. I see what you mean about risk, but why does the doctor have to take all the responsibility? I mean, there's a strong argument for informed consent, right? If we could just be given the information, then we can take the responsibility. Uh, like the testosterone in Tesco's? <laughs> Thank you, suitcase. I am aware that I'm now arguing for the complete opposite to what I was before. <laughs> but none of it is simple. You know, on the one hand, why do you need someone to tell you who you are? On the other hand, remember what Hirschfeld said. A diagnosis can be very reassuring, affirming even for some people. A friend of mine said once that for him, having a diagnosis meant he could tell his family. Like, it was a medical thing, so it made sense to them then. I wanted to say something else about Christine Jorgensen. As you say, she was a white, cis-normative woman, and in the 1950s, as you can imagine, there was this intense media interest in her. For thousands of trans people around the world, though, she became a possibility model. A possibility model? It's a phrase coined by Laverne Cox. In 2007, Laverne Cox watched the trans actor Candice Kane on TV and later described how at that moment she knew she could be an openly transgender actor. She said, that possibility model shifted my belief system. And of course, now Laverne Cox herself is a possibility model as a black trans woman actor watched by millions and so it goes on. It's just like the Greek myths something you only dreamed of, and then you find out that it can actually happen. Exactly, something you only dreamed of, and then you find out it can actually happen. I'd like to thank our guests, Ulrichs, Hirschfeld, Benjamin, and Kinsey. 
Please join us next time when I'll be interviewing trans elders from my time. Suitcase, do you have a possibility model? Well, there have been plenty of pieces of luggage that I've admired over the years. I remember when I first saw a suitcase with a telescopic handle and wheels. Game changer. <laughs> I meant more in terms of time travel. Oh, that. Well, as far as time travel goes, I am the possibility model. So hold on to your handbag. Now it's seen me, it might just jump down a wormhole and end up in the Middle Ages. <laughs> okay, seriously though, are there other pieces of luggage that can travel through time? Well, you know when people's cases go missing after a flight? No! <gasps> Actually, no. As far as I've observed, it's just me and a load of phone chargers. Wait, what? Well, you know what they're like. You buy a phone charger, use it a couple of times, and then off it goes to have a poke around the court of Elizabeth I. You never see it again. Do you know, one time I was there, it was... We turn a time around, it's our time. Adventures in Time and Gender was developed with trans and non-binary young people. Written by Jason Barker, with additional dialogue by the cast and crew. Directed by Krishna Istha. Sound by Joe Jackson. Music and lyrics by The Mollusk Dimension. In episode two of Adventures in Time and Gender, Sam Creera was the narrator, Emma Franklin was the suitcase, Elijah W. Harris was Ulrichs, Tallulah Haddon was Magnus Hirschfeld, Amelia Stubberfield was Harry Benjamin, Fox Fisher was Alfred Kinsey. The Foley mixer was Sophia Hardman. The Foley artist was Ollie Ferris. The re-recording mixer was Candela Palencia backing vocals and harmony by Wild. This podcast is funded by the Wellcome Trust and was made in collaboration with the Rethinking Sexology team at the University of Exeter and Gendered Intelligence. For further adventures and more wormholes to explore, please visit adventuresintimeandgender.org or join the conversation on hashtag transthroughtime. through time.